Good morning to you all. Today brings us to the third in our current short series on John's Gospel. In the first of the two talks, we looked at the, um, the first one of Jesus' seven great I am statements in this Gospel, and that was, I am the bread of life. When Jesus utters these words for the first time, first of many times in chapter 6, he says, not only whoever comes to me shall never hunger, point which he just illustrated graphically by feeding the 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes, but also whoever believes in me shall never be thirsty. And he went on to speak, as Morag was telling us last week, of, of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It's kind of messy language, shocking language. But in other words, we obtain all the spiritual sustenance that we need from him alone. John notes that all that took place at Passover time the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when Israel remembered their great deliverance from Egypt. But everyone remembered, too, that there was a second great miracle that made the first Passover truly effective, and that was the crossing of the Red Sea. Because whereas the people of Israel walked across on dry land with towering walls of water on either side, uh, the pursuing Egyptian army got swamped and drowned as the waters closed over them. So that was the one that made them really free from their oppressors. But this time, at this Passover, it was the Sea of Galilee that Jesus crossed, walking on the waves and overtaking the disciples' boat. Another miracle to do with traversing a sea at Passover time. In John's view, it seems Jesus was appropriating to himself the whole Passover message and narrative. Perhaps this is part of what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 5, verse 17, don't imagine that I came to do away with the law. I came to fulfill, not to destroy. And of course, the final fulfillment of the Passover story would come at precisely this time of year again, the following year, in his death and resurrection to free us all from slavery to sin and death. Now, St. Paul writes powerfully, even rudely, against those who wanted to drag the early church back into Judaism, make it a mere offshoot of the Jewish religion. And it may be that in his own gentler and more narrative style, John is making the same kind of point here, as he shows us Jesus fulfilling vital aspects of the Old Testament and superseding both the temple and its feasts. If so, this is a point we see underlined once more in today's reading from chapter 7. Because here comes another of the three main feasts of the Jewish calendar. Once again, Jesus appropriates it entirely to himself. And as we read, you may notice that in doing so, he uses the word I am three times in rather curious contexts. Now to any Jewish person, I am is a significant statement as it is the name that God called himself speaking to Moses at the burning bush. And I may be quite wrong about this because none of my commentaries actually picked this up, so I may be making it up. But as I struggled my way laboriously through the Greek, in my very unscholarly way, it stood out really clearly to me. As we read it in a moment, I'm going to change two phrases which the ESV has put into more flowing English back into the I am's of the original Greek. And I'm going to take out two others because they're not there in the Greek. So see what you think as we read this, and you'll see the clashes as we come to them uh, as it comes up on the screen. Let's read John chapter 7, verses 1 to 39. 
After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He wouldn't go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Not booze, booths. There was a bit of booze involved, I'm sure, but booths. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he then also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Hasn't Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. You're mad. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I am with you a little longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go? But we will not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? 
What does he mean by saying, you'll seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. For the sake of today's reading of this passage, I want to concentrate on on five distinct elements. First, I want to say a little bit about the context, because it's really important. Then I want to move on in fairly short order to look at Jesus first in terms of an attitude that is not of this world, then a training and a mandate that's not of this world, and thirdly, a life that is not of this world. Only then, since that's the order in which John presents things, will we finally get to the memorable key phrase of the whole passage about rivers of living water. So number one, the context, verses one and two. Like chapter six, this one also begins with that little phrase, after this or properly, after these things. So we're entitled to ask ourselves, well, what things? The story so far encompasses John the Baptist saying, behold the Lamb of God, Jesus gathering the twelve, the wedding at Cana with water turned to wine, the cleansing of the temple at the first of John's three Passovers, the secret meeting with Nicodemus, you know, all that salvation teaching, that you must be born again. And this is not the last time we'll encounter him in the gospel. The woman at the well, a Samaritan of all things, and most of her town coming to faith. The healing of the official son. The, well, uh, the growing challenge to Jesus' teaching and authority. And then the well-publicized and controversial healing on the Sabbath. And then we're into the second Passover narrative, which we dealt with uh, a minute ago, chapter 6. And through all of this, as the fame of Jesus grows, so does the opposition to him. So it is after these things that we meet Jesus at the opening of this chapter. That's the first element of our context, but the second is also vital. We find it in verse 2. The Jewish festival of booths or tabernacles combined both Israel's kind of harvest festival and also its remembrance of their ancestors' wilderness wanderings. In memory of that precarious refugee existence and the makeshift shelters frequently used by farmers at harvest time, all the male people of Israel, all the men and boys, were to come to Jerusalem and spend a week camping out in exactly the same kind of temporary shacks, perhaps made of sheets and tree branches, a bit like the kind of dens that you and I probably made when we were children and begged our mums to be allowed to sleep out in. And it was fun. There was feasting, there was singing, along with the sacrifices and the important religious significance of it. But one very particular part of the celebrations, which is unique to this festival, was a ceremony where water was poured out on the altar. The water was drawn at dawn, drawn at dawn, from the, uh, from the pool of Siloam and brought into the city with much ceremony and rejoicing. It came in through the water gate, and that's where the water gate gets its name from. It was then carried in procession into the temple, where it was ceremonially poured into a vessel on the altar which had a spout at the bottom, allowing the entire contents to pour out over the altar. 
At exactly the same time, wine was poured into an almost identical container on the other side of the altar. So that wine and water, does that make you think of anything? Wine and water flowed out over the surface and met in the middle before pouring off into the ground. Many people at the time believed in the ancient rabbinic tradition that the following year's rains would depend on this ritual being carried out reverently and correctly and also joyfully. The Sadducees particularly objected to that belief. The Pharisees seemed to have at least tolerated it, but all were united in one thing. This was the most joyful moment in the whole Jewish calendar. In fact, there was an old uh, saying at the time along the lines of, if you haven't been there when the water's poured out, you've never experienced joy. So it's easy to see how this context illuminates Jesus' great declaration in verse 38. But John wants us to notice a few things along the way before we get there. So let's try and do so. Number two, an attitude that is not of this world. Verses 3 to 13. (coughs) In verses 3 to 5, we see that like the 5,000 in the last chapter, even Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. They couldn't understand the way he went about things. Here was a major festival with devout pilgrims from all over the nearby world converging on Jerusalem. And Jesus is hanging around in the backwoods of Galilee. Why was he holding back? The wisdom of the world says we should go for maximum exposure all the time. (coughs) But Jesus didn't. What looked to the natural eye like a God-given opportunity to go international was in fact nothing of the kind. Excuse me. (coughs) That's got it. Anyone remember Bob Fleming on the fast show? (coughs) If I can't continue, I'll get Jesse to come and read this for me. It was nothing of the kind. As God's ways are higher than our ways, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, So Jesus did not follow worldly wisdom. And in parenthesis, since the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, let me set you a little homework here. We haven't got time to read it today, but Isaiah 55 offers an outstanding commentary (coughs) on today's passage, so please read it at home. Jesus didn't follow worldly wisdom. His attitude was different. It was one of listening to God, not men. And as verse 6 indicates, he is therefore operating on a completely different timetable. As Teilhard de Chardin famously said, above all, trust the slow work of God. Here once again we find Jesus saying, my time has not yet come. This is a repeated frame throughout this gospel, building and building the tension right up until the Last Supper narrative where Jesus finally says, my hour has come. But when that glorious time arrived, it looked nothing like anyone else expected. It looked much more gory than glory, much more shame than fame. And the disciples fled. As verse 7 indicates, the world distrusts what it cannot understand. 
and it hates those who call it to account. The question for us is what is our attitude? Are we clocked into world time or into God's time? To quote Thomas R. Kelly, as I did the other day, Deep within us all, there is an amazing inner sanctuary of the soul, a holy place, a divine centre, a speaking voice to which we may continuously return. Eternity is at our hearts, pressing upon our time-torn lives, warming us with intimations of an astounding destiny calling us home unto itself. A practising Christian must, above all, be one who practises the perpetual return of the soul into the inner sanctuary, who brings the world into its light and rejudges it, who brings the light into the world with all its turmoil and its fitfulness and recreates it. That's quite a good description of how I imagine Jesus lived his life. And it's a completely different attitude from the rest of the world. See, we can fit in with the world around us. Or we can take a step up. When in verse 8 he says, you go on up to this feast. It's not for me, because my time hasn't yet come. He's not telling fibs to his brothers. He's saying that with their attitude, they'll fit right in. It was quite possible to take worldly attitudes to the Feast of Tabernacles, as it's quite possible to bring worldly attitudes to God's church. But Jesus was looking for the whole of the law to be fulfilled. He was looking for a different harvest. He was looking to the fulfillment of the whole Exodus narrative, when he would lead a new people of God out of slavery to sin and death. He was looking for the outpouring, not of symbolic water on the altar, but of the reality of the Holy Spirit. So no, his time had not yet come. Seems to me it was always his plan to go to Jerusalem later. But as he says, that wasn't to observe a feast whose purpose was so nearly over. Either way, verse 11, people didn't understand. And in his absence, verses 12 and 13, conflicting rumours and opinions about him spread like wildfire. When he does show up, not at the beginning like any observant Jew ought to, but on day three or four, he's immediately challenged on something else that people don't understand. Number three, a training and a mandate that is not of this world. Verses 14 to 32. In Jewish society at that time, the recognized religious credentials were all about what rabbi or rabbinic school had trained you. Then as now, people tended to pay more attention to the sermons or writings of a reverend doctor than a mere reverend, or certainly more to a reverend than they do to a mere mister. But here's Jesus, he's a mister. He'd never trained under any rabbi. He had, as it were, no letters after his name. Yet clearly, verse 15, he had a deep understanding of the scriptures. But Jesus said, don't make the mistake of thinking, I'm therefore untrained, untutored. 
I'm not making this up as I go along. On the contrary, I've been trained by the best. And in fact, it is on his behalf, it is his teaching that I'm speaking to you right now. The trouble is, you're never going to accept this unless you sincerely want to do God's will. Then you'll get it all right. I'm completely trustworthy because I'm not promoting myself. I'm promoting the one who sent me. Well, I can imagine some blank stares between verses 18 and 19. Uh, Hang on a minute. Who are you saying trained you? So Jesus presses the point. You're all here for a feast that Moses ordained, but none of you obey the law he gave you. Why do you want to kill me? Well, the confusion of the crowd's response is probably quite genuine. Few of them could imagine at that point that attitude so many of them would hold just five months later as they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. But Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. And he sees the seeds of that murderous attitude already present in every heart. Then, harking back to the healing on the Sabbath that got everyone so wound up the last time he was in town, he points out the inconsistency in breaking the Sabbath to circumcise a baby, but objecting to him healing someone's whole body on the Sabbath, which is more work after all. And then in verse 24, he echoes 1 Samuel, 16, uh, 1 Samuel 16, 7. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. See, it's not right for God's people to judge by appearances. Our God doesn't, so neither should we. Then once again, confusion and disagreement reign supreme. And Jesus answers them in verse 28, again referring to God, who sent him, the source of his teaching and his mandate to teach and heal. And in verse 29 comes the first of the three little I am statements I notice in this passage. Not I have come from him, but I am from him. I don't know about you, but to me that's a very different statement. And it's possibly the one that pushed the authorities to act at last to arrest him. But they failed because God's purposes can't be defeated and his hour had not yet come. And here, verse 31, the division grows deeper. Now the authorities definitely want him stopped. But plenty of the common people look at his miracles and say, how could the Messiah, when he comes, possibly do any better than this? Now that really is too much for the chief priests and Pharisees. So what appears to be a second snatch squad is sent out into the crowd to get him. I've done that myself when I was in the police. Snatch squads going into the crowd. It's quite fun. You take the short shields, and you break, big shields break open, and you go into them. You're coming with me, dead or alive. Anyway, probably, probably a second snatch squad uh, sent out in the crowd to get him, apparently with as little success as the first, for reasons that will become apparent next week. Number four, a whole life that is not of this world. Now in verses uh, 33 and 34 come the second and third little I am statements in this passage. And I say small I am statements because they're not part of the big seven as recognized, but I think they're nevertheless important. I can quite see why the ESV translators, going with the most natural interpretation of the phrase, took the first of these to mean simply, I will be with you a little longer. But if the phrase in Greek really is more than merely accidental, if Jesus was deliberately using the present tense, I am, instead of the future, 
then there is here at least an echo in the words, I am with you, of Emmanuel, God with us. And in the overall context, this makes a lot of sense to me. Jesus is working to a different clock from the rest of the world, different values, a different form of training and validation. All that he works from and for and to and through is God himself. Jesus, the word of God in John, Emmanuel in Matthew and Isaiah, is, as Hebrews puts it, the very image of the Father. So whether he intends it or not, when Jesus says, I am with you, rather than I will be with you, he's speaking quite a mouthful of truth. Once long ago, his father was asked a question by Moses at the burning bush. Whom shall I say sent you? Who shall I say is calling? And God's answer, for want of a more humanly comprehensible description of the ever-living and all-powerful creator and sustainer of all things, famously said, I am has sent you. Now, the son of that same father, who used it as, it as it were, his family name, a moment ago when he said, I am from him, now uses it again to describe his soon-to-end earthly existence. When he ascends to the Father, there will be no more I am with mankind. Yet, as he'll teach his disciple five months later at the Last Supper, in very similar language, he's not going to leave them desolate. Another comforter will come to replace him. And with some urgency, just a few moments later, he's going to beg everyone to take full advantage. But let's not jump the gun, because John doesn't. Before we get there, let's just notice the last of these little I am statements in verse 34. Once again, he doesn't say, where I'm going, you can't come. He says, where I am, you cannot come. The very place he now inhabits is completely inaccessible to mankind. And he can't be talking about geography. And he use a little prop here. Anyone could stand up, push him aside, like someone that we've seen on YouTube recently, and stand in the spot where he's standing. If you're listening to the podcast, I had a red baseball cap on briefly there. And stand on the physical spot where he now stands. No, it is the very I amness of where Jesus stands, spiritually, that cannot be approached by any human being. At least, not yet. But read on, because that's going to change. Yet as we read in the prologue of this gospel, chapter 1, verse 12, to those who believed on his name, he gave the power, the right, to become children of God. Just like him. Yes, to share in the very bloodline of God himself. To become part of the I Am family. Does anyone else here feel that we might have been wearing that privilege a little lightly? Lastly, living water. It's in this context that the well-known and little understood phrase about rivers of living water finally comes. For us today, reading this passage, as John wrote it, it's mainly a context of just how unapproachable the nature and the life of Christ is to mortal man and woman. For his listeners at the time, it's a context of harvest festival, of remembering their ancestors' deliverance from slavery, of thankfulness 
an ecstatic, joyful, religious fervour. It is specifically a time when life-giving water is celebrated and prayed for every day for a whole week. At dawn, every day that week, as light broke over the pool of Siloam, where Jesus would later heal the man blind from birth, so that light dawned in his life for the first time. At Siloam, a priest accompanied by a joyful procession would draw water from it, take it to the temple, and pour it out as I described earlier. And at the very end of the week of doing that, as the celebrations reach their climax, Jesus stands up and shouts at the top of his not inconsiderable voice, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, or literally his body cavity, will flow rivers of living water. The connections are inescapable. He's talking about a human being becoming the center of precisely this ceremony when it becomes real. This places us as empty vessels on God's altar, waiting to be filled, only to pour out what he pours in as an act of worship enjoyed by all who see it. It makes us the center of unparalleled joy, celebration, and it makes us containers of the very stuff of life. It makes us the centerpiece of the great celebration of God's goodness and fruitfulness. If we are thirsty, dry vessels like that pot on the altar, we don't have to wait like it to be filled by some human agent with mere physical water. We can, of our own volition, come to Jesus and drink. And as we drink, we also pour out into the world life and joy and celebration of who God is. But as verse 39 reminds us, by this water, Jesus really means the Holy Spirit. This is how the Holy Spirit is to work in our lives, poured in as we come to Christ and pouring out of our lives just as fast for the blessing of others. And for us, reading at this distance of time and culture, it is the same Holy Spirit who closes the gulf between where we stand and the place from which Jesus tells us, I am. The unapproachable I am invites us to come to him and drink of his spirit, his nature, his attitude, his training and mandate, his very life. So come. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. Lord Jesus, this is um, this is mysterious stuff. This is this is poetry and wonder, and I'm conscious of uh, my own interpretation all over today's talk. So, so please, by your Spirit, blow away anything that's not from you. But would you plant the seeds in our heart of anything that you have spoke? And whatever else happens, Lord, we we know that you are the I am. 
and we know that you invite us to come to you and drink. So we pray that as we enter our ministry time now and people come forward to to receive a touch from you, to receive healing for bodies and minds and spirits, to receive blessing from you, to receive anointing. We invite you to come and pour your life-giving water into us that we may pour it out to a needy world. And we offer ourselves to you as empty vessels on your altar before the rejoicing crowds. In Jesus' name, amen.